Hi, this is Matt Slepin, and welcome to Leading Voices in Real Estate. Today's episode is an interview with Lynn Katzman, the founder and CEO of Juniper Communities, an owner-operator, developer, and manager of senior living communities. Based in North Jersey, Juniper owns and operates 28 properties in New Jersey, Pennsylvania, Texas, and Colorado. Within their portfolio, and all together in some of their properties, Juniper offers all levels of care from independent living to assisted living, memory care, and nursing. Lynn founded the company 33 years ago, is the only woman-owned business among the top owners in the assisted living business, and has been recognized by Cranes New York as one of the top women-owned businesses in the tri-state area. This is a follow-up to my conversation back in October with David Schles, the president of the American Seniors Housing Association, where we talked largely about the impact of COVID on this business, a topic that is also a large part of the conversation with Lynn. It's one of those obvious time of life things, and you do not really get it until you're in the middle of it. But everyone I know of my age has been going through it, which is caring for their aging parents, which so often includes tough discussions with one's parents about their moving out of their long-term home to some type of seniors housing community. As Lynn says in our interview, unlike in regular housing, the seniors housing business is marketing to two very different consumers, equally the future resident as well as their adult children. So for us boomers with aging parents, we're shopping this for our parents, but of course also thinking, hmm, I'm next in line and questioning whether this place is somewhere where I could see myself 20 years hence. What will be the right kind of option when it's time for me and my generation? With that and those dynamics, seniors housing is a constantly evolving and highly differentiated business and one now clearly driven by hugely compelling demographics. And back to the personal side, my mom moved into a great community in the Philly suburbs just two years ago and just passed away a few weeks ago. So the conversation, especially about the dynamics of Brown moving people in, care and community along the way, especially during COVID, and then care and community during hospice was highly personal. And in the conversation, you'll experience Lynn as one of those business leaders, as we so often hear at Leading Voices, with her hands remarkably on the wheel of the day-to-day challenges, again, especially during COVID, at the same time that she's navigating the opportunities of the overall business. As we were planning for this interview, I read about Lynn in the New York Times as one of the early businesses requiring employees to get vaccinated, a controversial but really sensible practice, which we talk about in the show. Thank you, Lynn, for your leadership in this business. At Terra Search Partners, we give career advice all day long to people at all phases of their careers in real estate. And that perspective is one of the reasons that the last question on leading voices is always the guest's career advice. No surprise to listeners, but one of my beliefs is that usually finding focus, both in terms of finding a discipline within the business as well as finding a product niche within the business, is a key key to career success and satisfaction. And these conversations on Leading Voices really explore many of those niches and tell the stories of those who've had very satisfying careers and built successful companies in both those niches as well as in the mainstream. At Terra Search Partners, since we're so in the people business, we advise people at all phases of their career on their own continued quest to find their sweet spot and calling. And by the way, even for the most successful and established folks, I think that quest never ends. One of the things I've been doing in my intro lately is recommending other podcasts. I've been listening to some of the episodes of Broken Record, a podcast about the music business that they call Liner Notes for the Digital Age. This morning, I listened to their interview with Mary Clayton, who everyone will know is that extraordinary voice alongside Mick Jagger on Gimme Shelter. A moment when she hits it for people of my generation, one of the half dozen high points achieved in that era of music. My two word takeaways from the interview are the words humility and resilience. You have to listen to the episode to understand why I'm using those words and why I recommend that you take a listen to this conversation with Mary Clayton. Go for it. 
Similarly, this conversation with Lynn Katzman is definitely a special episode with Leading Voices and one for you to forward on both for inspiration on entrepreneurship, especially for young women on the business, but also for those of us dealing with aging parents. So as always, feel free to forward this episode to a friend and pop me a note if you have questions, advice for the podcast, or comments to matt at terrasearchpartners.com. I hope that you enjoy the conversation with Lynn. Lynn, thank you and welcome to Leading Voices in Real Estate. This is our second conversation on the seniors housing business, a business I know and care about well. I used to be in your business years ago in the mid to late 80s, in the early days of congregate care. And also of late, this is a raw in a positive way subject because my mother just passed away a couple of weeks ago and she lived in a sunrise community originally developed by Marriott called the Quadrangle in Philly, near where I grew up. So I get to live through both getting her in and I guess getting her out and her two-year life cycle there. And the phrase that she said literally every time I talked to her after she was in was, Matt, I'm in the right place. Thank you. Yep. That's a good mantra to have. And we find that that's very typical of people who uh, who come in and live with us, particularly those who have waited a long time to make the decision. Yeah. And do they wait a long time largely because their husband, who may not be there anymore, just wouldn't the, the couple wouldn't move in together. You know, sometimes it's that. Sometimes it's a, it's children. Mm-hmm. Sometimes it is a fear of what they believe will be an institutional rather than a home-like environment. And when they join us in a community, they recognize that it is very home-like, that you're essentially in an apartment in, it's like multifamily. But at this point, age-segregated multifamily. And you get many more services. You have access to people and friends. And people really enjoy that. It makes life easier and better in most cases. And so once you're there, I think people see that very well. And it becomes, many people will say, not only am I in the right place, but why did I wait so long? Exactly. And we hear that quite often. Totally true. So we've kind of run gone right into the conversation, but let's start with your giving an overview of your company. We're going to come back and deconstruct everything, but what are the headlines about Juniper Communities? Where are you? What what are the types of assets that you have? And then your role within sure. the company, and then we'll, we'll dive in. Okay. So Juniper Communities, our birthday is April 6th, and on April 6th, we'll be 33 wow. years old. At this point in time, and we've evolved, we've, I, I think the constant throughout those 33 years has been many of the people, but more importantly, our commitment to older adults. The way we've served older adults has changed over the years. Today, we are an owner-operator of 28 communities in four states, including Colorado, Texas, New Jersey, and Pennsylvania. And we operate communities that include everything from an apartment uh, or an independent living uh, apartment all the way to skilled nursing and rehabilitation. And we operate everything in between. So we have standalone memory care, we operate assisted living, and in many cases, well, not in many cases, but in some cases, we have all of those levels in a campus. So that's known typically as a life plan community or a continuing care retirement community. In our case, some of our communities fit that technical definition and others are just a collection of those type of buildings within on one campus. Got it. And do you, and some, do you have an entry fee, which is part of that CCRC mantra or no? We are getting away from that. The end, the industry itself is getting away from the entry fee model. We do have two communities that have both rental and entry fee options. Mm -hmm. And when you talked about geography, it was interesting. It was all like tri-state Philly area where I'm from in New Jersey and New York. 
And in Colorado, <laughs> what was dot 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 in Colorado? In Colorado and Texas, and so we also operated at some point in time in Maine, in Connecticut, in Massachusetts, and in Florida. But we are no longer in those states. So it's a, it's an interesting story. Um, Juniper is, I guess, a hallmark of the company is innovation and being able to take advantage of opportunities as they arise that we believe serve our desire to create innovative uh, services and people, places, and programs for older adults. Good. It, and it's interesting that you just talked about training for this. I'm reading this book that you'll know better than me by Atul Gawande called Being Mortal. Mm-hmm. And so I'm only yes, like I'm a third of the way it. through. But one of the shocking kind of, and I'm not going to get the statistic correct, which is that gerontology is disappearing in terms of uh, training and and professionals going into that field. And some schools are actually canceling those programs. Yeah, there are generally very few gerontologists. Historically, there have never been many. And in an era where medical schools, I believe, are fighting Mm -hmm. for survival in some cases, the gerontology programs are not the big money makers. So it is not surprising. Now, that's totally different then it, it certainly bears no relationship to need. Let me put it that way. Yeah, the demographics so run in the opposite direction. They are. They are. They do. And I think most people who end up serving an older clientele tend to be internists, primary care providers. I think you're going to see a shift mm-hmm. to a focus on chronic care management rather than the heavy-duty intervention that we think of as medical care in this country. And chronic care management can be done in a number of ways by a number of different disciplines. Understanding the needs of the older adult should be something every doctor learns. It shouldn't just be limited to those who are specialized in gerontology. Right. It's interesting as, a, as a, I'm not a young person, I'm 64 and three quarters or whatever, but, and what was interesting, Me too. Re- congratulations. And you. Perfect age. <laughs> We have so much to learn and so much to do. It was interesting as I'm reading this book, though, because they talked about medical care in your younger years about solving individual problems. And then in your later years about, sorry, you got a bunch of individual problems and they all have to be managed versus solved. Yeah. Yeah. Well, you know, I think a lot of what we do early in life impacts how we live as older adults. Mm -hmm. And I think many of the choices we make, whether it be nutrition, fitness, how we live, the stress we handle in our lives, all impact the conditions that we face as older adults. The problem as we get older is that we get more of them. Our body is not as able to fend off some of the impacts that we create by our life choices anymore. And so they begin to become chronic problems. And chronic problems require a different type of intervention. Mm -hmm. They require monitoring. Mm -hmm. They require uh, a different lifestyle management. Mm -hmm. They require... Instead of heavy-duty hospital care, they require being someone knowing you and watching for changing condition. Mm-hmm. And addressing that early on makes a huge difference. And actually, that's something that Juniper spent a lot of time paying attention to. And it's one of our innovative programs, which we can talk about later, called Connect for Life. Mm-hmm. I, I'm betting that one thing, one of the many things that blew me away about my mom's situation was the people who cared for her particularly in her last days, and that that's what they do for a living. And, you know, I'm lucky in my living, I get to deal with people improving their careers, mid-career and whatever it is, right? And it's all positive. It's all growth. And here's people whose career or life is about, I'm going to deal with people for a three-week period of time, and they're going to die. And the level of caring and understanding and empathy that they had blew me away. So the training you must do for your overall teams, but particularly the people in that kind of role, must be extraordinary. Uh, we do a lot of training, but you realize it, this is a, a business which is in many ways a calling. Mm-hmm. And even our lowest paid staff members, those who are doing most of the work caring for individuals, mm-hmm. they have a choice. They have a choice of working at Walmart or McDonald's or one of our communities. Mm -hmm. We all pay about the same amount. Mm -hmm. What we offer is purpose. Mm -hmm. And for many people, that's a very, very rich 
reward. So I, you know, I think it's important to recognize that we train people, but for people to do the kind of work you mm-hmm. saw right. recently, it, it involves more than just technical skills. It involves more than just energy and your physical ability to do the work. It, it requires you to care. Mm-hmm. And to do this work for many years, one needs to have a calling. And I believe many of the people who, who not only come to our industry, but stay, mm-hmm. have that sense of purpose. And companies that understand that right. and that train to that and recognize that, I think will have a better opportunity to succeed and to keep the kind of people that provide the care it sounds like your mother was able to receive. Yeah. And it's interesting if you think of purpose uh, in question, my job, I think of purpose for white collar workers a lot, a lot. Mm -hmm. We think about this, but in this case, it's the purpose for essentially frontline blue, blue collar workers, if that's the right word. And if you instill purpose at, for those folks at that level, that's a perfectly marvelous thing to be able to do. Well, I, you know, I think many times they come to us with that sense of purpose. Yeah, they have to. They it has make to be that in choice, and they feel comfortable caring for other individuals. It's it's culturally uh, appropriate. It, they tend to be women, and mm-hmm. on the front lines, I I think it is a natural career opportunity. What we do with it and how we train them and the opportunity we give them mm-hmm. then defines how that experience feels. But I think the the base of mm-hmm. caring for another human being, mm-hmm. of getting to know another human being so well mm-hmm. that you're able to make their life better mm-hmm. is huge. And I think people there are if it's not a conscious recognition, it's a subconscious. Yeah, totally true. So let's dive into that later on. Let's totally change the subject. Uh, We've been starting all of the leading voices over the past one year on COVID and how COVID was responded to in the guest business. And one of the headlines of COVID in the place it first came out was in a nursing home. So your business, and I'm betting your overall business was tagged with, "Uh uh-oh, what are we going to do? So talk about kind of the first months of COVID and how you responded and how ready and prepared you were for dealing with this stuff. Okay. So let me, I have a long and uh, I think a really good story on COVID that may be different from some of my peers. Mm -hmm. I came back from Japan on February 29th of 2020. Mm -hmm. I tell you that only because the day we left Japan, Japan shut down. So we were in Hiroshima the day before at the museum, which was an incredible experience, knowing that the next day all of those public venues would shut down. Having had that experience and flying and watching the Japanese who tend to wear masks anyway. To begin with, yeah. To begin with, um, relate, stuck in my mind. I'm also a, um, a policy wonk by training and probably by avocation. And so when I look at healthcare policy and issues, I never look just to what's in front of me. We always look to what is around us and to historical experience. Mm-hmm. So we looked at that and we said, hmm, there's something here. Now at the time, so our first cases of COVID in our communities, we, as I said, operate in New Jersey and Colorado, we had unknown case in both one community in New Jersey and one in Colorado was a staff member, but we knew people were sick. Mm-hmm. And so we made the decision to test universally. Now, at the time, the rule of thumb was you only tested people with symptoms. Mm-hmm. Why? Mm-hmm. Because SARS 2003 spread from people who had symptoms. Mm-hmm. So the common knowledge on the disease or, or our historical knowledge on a SARS-related virus, Mm -hmm. was to test when symptomatic. We chose not to do that. We found a commercial lab and on April 1st, tested everyone in those two buildings, staff and residents alike. Mm -hmm. We got the results on April 4th and they were frightening. We realized that we had many cases of COVID. The vast majority, 94% of the staff who tested positive and 74% of the residents who tested positive were asymptomatic Mm. and remained asymptomatic. 
So we learned on April 4th, contrary to what people were saying, right. that the disease was spread asymptomatically. It was invisible and it was insidious. So that changed the way we acted from the get-go. So we began, we tested every building shortly thereafter, those that were totally COVID-free and where we could galvanize our teams, we sheltered in place. So we created a bubble Mm -hmm. around our programs. For those we couldn't do that, we put in place rigid cohorting, use of PP and E, and continued to test. And frankly, once our initial outbreaks were dealt with, um, we had very, very, very little COVID throughout our system thereafter. Mm-hmm. I think one of the one of the themes we'll have maybe in this conversation is least common denominator versus high common denominator. And I fear in your sector, least common denominator gets the headlines and we learn about it because the other large companies in the space, I think, attacked this very aggressively. David Schless and I talked about this on our podcast, and I certainly was the case at Sunrise where my mom was. Uh, it was aggressive and the level of communication was actually extraordinary. Communication yes. to kids, parents, everybody. Yeah, 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 yeah. We still communicate three times a week to every single person in our communities mm-hmm. and their families. Three mm-hmm. times a week as of, we still do it. I don't know how long we'll continue doing it. People love it. Mm-hmm. The communication has really meant a lot. Yep. Being transparent has meant a lot. And taking the action that we took has meant a lot. Let me go on with the story, if I can, Matt, because over the summer, we put in place a a number of additional policies. We had cleaning protocols that used non-toxic cleaning materials that were still approved by the various authorities to kill the germs. When we do something, we try very hard not to create a problem by solving a problem. Mm-hmm. Kind of the Ivan Illich iatrogenic disease. We want to avoid iatrogenic disease. So that was, we did that. We put together a virtual site for people to access engagement opportunities. And we did it not just for ourselves, but we put it up on the web. And it was a, a crowdsourced platform called Virtual Connections, Uh slvirtual.com, provided programming that people could access in any number of of domains, educational, arts, Uh simple activities, arts and crafts types of activities, what have you. And it was everything was free. Uh And we just put it up there so that people could utilize that. So we took a number of different steps to try to deal with the problems that COVID caused, isolation um, among them. So let's go back to that one, because it's an interesting one. So your residents are stuck in their apartments, but now there's a virtual platform that they could interact with others and have some socialization and like that. And yes. it's interesting, again, I'll keep talking about my mom because I miss her, but she, she had zero technological capability. She was terrified. She figured out how to use her iPhone and answer it, but that's about all she could do. So was your average resident able, willing, and relishing somehow getting online to do these things? Were they capable of doing that? So some were. Mm-hmm. And in other cases, what we did is we arranged with families for visits mm-hmm. and we actually would schedule visits and bring the technology to them right. in a way where they could access it. We'd have somebody go there and help them mm-hmm. set it up. Mm-hmm. Um, so we did that in a number of ways. As the summer came, wore on, right. we began to do programming in very different ways than we've done it before. We would do by cohort. People would come bring a chair out to their doorway of their apartment, and we would run programs out there, whether it was an exercise program or an art appreciation program. Art appreciation is kind of hard. Music appreciation we could do. Mm -hmm. We did a number of meditation programs. You know, we tried all kinds of things Mm -hmm. just to enable people to engage. I want to make one other point that I think is really critical. What was different about living in community mm-hmm. rather than living in their individual home is that, remember, at least three times a day and typically five or six times a day, depending on the number of times you needed assistance or medications, someone, a human being, you interacted with a human being. Right. Now, they might be wearing PP&E, mm-hmm. but you still had human contact. Mm-hmm. 
And that was really important. I think it's really important for people in the greater community to understand that that alone, Mm -hmm. while not perfect, eliminated some of the most serious issues that could have arisen. You know, I think what we're dealing with now is that people didn't move around enough. Mm -hmm. And so some of that lack of movement and functional capability has gone downhill. But in most cases, the uh, while we couldn't touch and people are dying for hugs and love those hugs and mm-hmm. love to kind of communicate in different ways, there was actually human connection. Mm-hmm. And then what happened? So keep walking through the months because the surge happened and then the vaccine right. so started. Then we got another surge in mm-hmm. October, mm-hmm. started in October. It was clear it was going to happen. Mm-hmm. You know, people were letting down their guard. And uh, testing wasn't what, what it needed to be. So at Juniper, we upped the ante. We oh, said, sure. we're going to test more often. So we started testing at a minimum twice a week mm-hmm. and as often as 70, every 72 hours mm-hmm. for our, our team members coming into the building. Mm-hmm. And when a case came, when we found a case, a positive, obviously that person, we did all the contact tracing, that person was sent home. And if need be, we isolated all of our residents back into cohorts and did the same with our team members. I think the other thing you should know is we also got together with our testing group, which is Decina, a company called Decina, and we did a, uh, a study, a validation study on cheek swabs. Hmm. So we were able to move our residents and frankly others in the industry away from the nasal swabs to a cheek swab, which was far more comfortable. Absolutely true. So we did the validation study on that and brought together some other industry folks to help us reach the numbers we needed to validate that as a processing method. Let's fast forward if we can, because I read about you you in the New York Times. Yeah, and I I read about you in the New York Times some controversy around taking a strong stance on this. Yeah, yeah, yeah. So uh, we ran our COVID programs through a small group of uh, people from around the company. It was called the Corona Crew. There are 12 of us that participated, um, variety of disciplines across uh, the company. We as a group felt that the greatest relief our residents and our team members could get would be to embrace vaccination so that we could put the disease behind us as much as anyone could. Mm-hmm. So on December 7th, we made a public announcement that everyone who didn't fit a medical or religious exemption, who wanted to work at Juniper, would have to agree to be vaccinated. And we gave people, obviously, so remember December 7th, there were no EUA-approved vaccines. Mm -hmm. The first vaccines were uh, granted approval in Mm mid-December. Mm-hmm. And the first vaccines actually were given around the 21st. We had our first clinic scheduled for the 29th wow. of December. So people had time to get a medical exemption if that's if it was appropriate for them to do so, or a religious exemption. Uh, and we had some people self-terminate, but it was much lower than people were fearful of. And so Juniper was the first, and my team is very make sure I say this because others followed suit, Mm -hmm. but we were the first to do so on December 7th. What we did is we began an educational campaign and we didn't leave it up to the communities to do. We did it uh, from my home office. We did it for the whole company. We ran a series of webinars, of call-in sessions. We had uh, medical professionals. We had uh, a 70-year-old nurse who was part of the Moderna trial, talk about her experience and essentially said, well, tell us what your issue is. Let's see if we can come to an understanding that will make you feel comfortable. If you don't want a vaccine, that is certainly your choice, but it is no longer than your choice to work in our community unless you have one of the EEO or ADA exemptions. Mm -hmm. What was your drop off of people who chose not to stay? And then what was the was there any backlash to this no. policy that, to me, makes total no. sense? No, no. We had 40 people to date. Mm-hmm. So from December 7th until what's today, March 29th, that have self-terminated across our entire system of 28 buildings. How many people do you have total? Um, over 1,300. So it's very little. 
-hmm. very little. And I attribute that to our team, to the people who Mm -hmm. work with us and to the education and to just a human desire to put this behind us. Mm-hmm. Yeah, and it's how you roll it out with the same level of transparency that you've described through the conversation, but that really yeah, yeah, yeah. matters. So we've had 96% of our staff and 98% of our residents are fully vaccinated and have been. And so, you know, when you think about the value to the business, mm-hmm. being able to say that to people looking at mm-hmm. joining our community mm-hmm. It's a very potent differentiator. Mm-hmm. And are your dining rooms open and the rest of your services at this point, given those statistics? Where we can be, yes. But you have to realize that in certain communities, certain local communities, the government uh, has been slower mm-hmm. in adopting new guidelines that permit that type of activity in all cases. So visitation, as you know, the CDC mm-hmm. and CMS, the agency that oversees Medicare and Medicaid has come out and said visitation, you must do visitation, you must allow visitation. But how that gets done is often tempered by the state or the local government as well. So in general, yes, Mm -hmm. there are cases where that's that has not happened Mm -hmm. as rapid. Cool. I want to pivot to talk about you and how your company got founded and then this industry. Is there anything we're missing in the COVID story that is really important to talk about? No, I think, uh, you know, we're starting to use AI, we're using artificial intelligence, we're starting to um, put together a base of data on our testing, which will work with Decina to understand more from, we continue to test, I guess the only thing left to say is we continue to test, Because the the vaccine is very effective, but not completely effective. Right. Is there anything in the protocols and what you went through with this that changes your behavior and sophistication as a company forever? I think we've always been innovative. We've always been willing to make a decision based on what we believed had the best interests of those Mm -hmm. in who either worked for us or lived with us in mind. That has not changed. I think our understanding of our flexibility, our creativity, and our ability to understand information or to seek information, take it in and make decisions is something that across the company has felt good to everyone. And I think we'll certainly continue in a much more widespread manner. Uh It's interesting. I'm thinking that there is, in the level of control that you described here, and I'll use another word for control, intrusiveness, both into your employees and your residents, that there's some tension between privacy and intrusion. Yeah, there is. So let me put it to you this way, Matt. Mm -hmm. A lot of old people, older adults Mm -hmm. with chronic illnesses got seriously sick and died. Right. Right. A lot of people with chronic illnesses got seriously sick and many died. Mm Mm-hmm. Do you want to take a vaccination that hasn't killed anyone or open yourself up to the possibility that you could catch a deathly virus, mm-hmm. a deadly virus? Mm-hmm. To me, it's life versus death. Mm-hmm. You don't have to debate that. Do you want to live <laughs> right. with a little bit of pain and maybe a little fever for a night? Or do you want to take, do you want to roll the dice? Yes. I think that there's a long-term question for our society around I just wrote down words, privacy, control, technology, intrusiveness, right? And there's a tension between those two things that we're going to live with for a long time, not just in your business. And I think COVID brings up the necessity of more directly hitting that thing. I think so. But I I want to point out to you that older adults Mm -hmm. by far had much less vaccine hesitancy. Mm -hmm. And I bet you, you remember, as I do, getting a polio vaccine. Mm Mm-hmm. Did you get yours on a sugar cube in a parking lot? Sure did. Yeah. Okay. You know, we did. And did you have to have that before you could go to school? Yes. And do did many of our much older adults remember the aftermath of the 1918 flu epidemic? Yes. Mm-hmm. And did they remember polio? And did they remember smallpox? Right. Yes. Mm-hmm. And so for them, the take-up rate, the acceptance rate is really high. Right. And I think it's just a way of life. They see Mm -hmm. vaccines as lifesavers. I think it's vaccines and everything else you've talked about, testing too, right? All of it matters. So 
But I, I hear you. People are going to question privacy. I think that's a, a fact that we're going to deal with in many issues, not just healthcare in this country. Totally. I mean, we right now have to find common ground among our polar yes. political and health related uh, sides, if you will. And so it's finding that middle ground for me, reducing it to the simplest common denominator. Do you want to live or do you want to die? Yeah. Is is the easiest way. Do you care about your privacy if you're six feet under? Right. So let's totally change the subject and talk about you and Juniper and how this got started. And I'm curious, you grew up in New Jersey. New Jersey. Cool. Mm -hmm. And anything about childhood so I, that might preface that you came into this business? Well, this particular business, it's not at all surprising that I became an entrepreneur. My father owned a business. My grandmother owned a business. Grandmother. And it was my grandmother yeah. who is my was my role model. So uh -huh. my grandmother was born in Germany and uh, she came from a poor family that had four daughters. Mm -hmm. And um, in those days, having a dowry was important to marriage. And she didn't have a dowry. And so she and her sister started a business, which eventually became her dowry. Mm. My grandmother, and this was in the early 1930s, she was born in 1896, mm -hmm. got married in either her late 20s or early 30s, probably her early 30s, I'm not sure of that, but had my mother at 36. Wow. So my grandmother showed me that a woman could do just about anything she wanted to do, mm -hmm. and that she could be both a business person and have a family. So she had a remarkable, made a remarkable impression on me. My father was an entrepreneur, so I grew up in a household that that, that was not at all uncommon. Now, getting to healthcare is a very different story. Mm -hmm. As I was in college, I decided I would go to um, graduate school in Europe. So I went to the London School of Economics, and I had to choose. I knew I wanted to be in a helping profession, but for me, it was either education or healthcare. And um, I believe that both of them would experience massive change during my professional career. But I thought healthcare would be more compelling during that time period. And so I chose healthcare and went on to study uh, European healthcare systems, in particular the German system, as it relates or as I believed it would have influence on the American healthcare system. So that's what I did my doctorate in. So healthcare has always been part of me. Long-term care came about because I was invited to a dinner party, met someone whose grandfather owned a, a controlling interest in a public health care company traded on the Amex. Uh, he invited me to come work with them. And at a very, in my mid-20s, I found myself helping to, uh, having a, a role in participating in the evolution of a company that had both nursing homes at the time and retirement communities. We also <laughs> differentiated into value-based care, what's today known as value-based care and started a, a PPO on the island of Puerto Rico. So we built that company up, we doubled its value in two years and sold it. And then uh, a year later I started Juniper. So that's my story. And uh, I was 32 when I started Juniper. And when you started it, was the goal long-term care or was it more retirement communities at the other end of the spectrum? No, it was long-term care. It was what I knew. Mm -hmm. And what I wanted to do was raise a fund to purchase properties and find small regional operators to run them uh, rather than run them directly. And so we acted as a private a type of a private real estate investment vehicle. And in the end, we didn't raise a large fund. We raised a property-specific offering. So we found the properties and we found people to invest in those properties initially. And that was the beginning of Juniper. Um, over time, we switched the model from a lease to a management agreement, which enabled us to keep the upside that these people provided, the cash, the improved cash, cash flow. We bought undermanaged, undermanaged properties and turn them around. That was essentially the model. We used the increase in cash flow to either fund a refinance or to allow them to buy us out or to go buy more properties. And that was the base. We then got into assisted living in the middle of the 90s. 
and uh, memory care towards the end of the 90s. And by 2000, we came to the conclusion that we wanted to not just own the buildings, but also operate them. That having both sides of the platform was important. And so today we're an owner operator. We've sold a couple of our properties to a real estate investment trust to create a capital event for our investors. We also manage on behalf of third parties today. When did independent living get into that model? Was that early? Uh, probably about 10 years ago we started. And we started just with apartments and small cottages. We believe it's a, a will be a big part of what we do moving forward. Uh-huh. And is that because you have uh, soup to nuts in terms of the continuum of care, or is that a different investment dynamic than might be the, the levels of care beyond that? I think consumers are looking for something that they perceive as less institutional. Mm-hmm. And I think they perceive independent living as apartments, mm-hmm. as essentially congregate a, a community of apartments mm-hmm. where people elect to get services when they need them, rather than everybody receiving a package of services. And so it, it I think it appeals more to us boomers, Matt. Mm-hmm. It is something where we have more choice and control over our surroundings and the services we get. And yet, because people live in a community, mm-hmm. there's company, mm-hmm. there's social connection, which is much easier, and there are economies of scale in terms of uh, purchasing services when they're needed. Mm-hmm. Mm-hmm. And, and is it, first of all, the people even in independent living who move in wind up being in their 80, mid-80s as an average, yep. no matter how you cut it. Yep. So there's an insecurity to drive it there, be it you or your spouse. Yeah, yeah, typically. People don't, it's not really a retirement. For those who are planners mm-hmm. and who think ahead and get things done ahead, they they will consider probably not just an independent living, but something that has different levels of care. Mm-hmm. And is it having the other levels of care that enables someone to want to be in your independent living because they see, okay, I don't have to worry about that? Sometimes yes, sometimes no. Mm-hmm. Independent living, I believe, can exist on its own as long as you can access services when you need them. Mm-hmm. It's funny. I was on the phone last week with someone who runs the active adult community. That means multifamily, no services for it a big multifamily. Yeah. And I said, well, what's the average age for these people coming in? And she said, mid-80s. <laughs> and yeah. nonetheless, active yeah. adult, mid-80s. Yeah, I think it's irrelevant. I think you'll probably see those people in your late 70s. Mm-hmm. You're seeing IL early to mid 80s, mm-hmm. and assisted living is mid to late 80s. Mm-hmm. So, how does this evolve over time? And when us boomers get there, what will it look like? And will, will we want to do it, or will it still be a facility? And how does it really become a home, not a facility? I get an apartment building being an apartment building. That Love it. Facility, don't want that. And that will change generationally by desire, self-image, and stuff like that. So the it has to constantly evolve, I'm, I'm assuming. It does. It does. And I think we're at an inflection point for a couple of reasons. Mm-hmm. I think COVID has pushed the envelope. And as you pointed out, you know, the New York Times wrote many articles, very few were positive mm-hmm. to the industry as a whole, whether it was on the senior living or obviously in the nursing home side, it was quite negative. Mm-hmm. And we could spend an hour just talking about that, which we'll do another time. Mm-hmm. But I believe that people's perceptions of living in community because of the way COVID initially spread was very difficult. I think the fact that we are vaccinating early and opening up earlier than other environments hopefully will dispel some of that negativity, but it it won't dispel all of it. So I think we're battling a negative consumer perception. Mm-hmm. which is part and parcel of COVID. The other thing that COVID did is I think it made people acknowledge that care is a part of what we provide. So it is not purely a hospitality model, mm-hmm. but it is care that's provided with a social conscience, mm-hmm. as I call it, my mm-hmm. words. Mm-hmm. You know, we manage lifestyle. You just call it different things. The fact that people can get three meals a day with us matters. Mm -hmm. Why? You don't have to go to the store. 
you don't have to cook, you don't have to clean up, but you have a social environment in which you get your nutrition. So it becomes a, a part of your day that also serves to keep you healthy. You don't get that in every environment. And I think people seek that out. But I, you know, what are we gonna want? We're gonna wanna make choices. We're gonna wanna have control over environment and we're gonna want social connection. I think that we will not wanna live in 250 or even 350 square feet. We're going to, to the degree we can afford it. We want slightly larger spaces and we want peace. We want comfort. We want someone to help us manage our lifestyle so that we can live our best life. And I think we in senior living do that. We certainly will need to change consumer per perception by education. I think we will have to repackage. And I think we have to deliver better on independence and choice. Those have always been part and parcel of the values which drive our industry, but how we deliver on them, I think, needs to continue to change. It's interesting. I'm, I'm now trying to talk my father and stepmother into moving into some type of community. And the having to pay for one meal a day, that, that might be the killer for them. And they're ready. It's time for a bunch of reasons. They'll listen to this podcast and they'll be pissed off I'm suggesting this. But <laughs> from a security standpoint, you know, their house is a, if you walk through their house, it's just a bunch of barriers that someone's going to trip on. Any day now. Yeah, yeah. Dangerous well, you know, I'm writing a blog right now. And when I train on Juniper's culture, I use Maslow's hierarchy mm -hmm. as an example. And so when you think about it, what, what's at the bottom of the pyramid mm -hmm. for Maslow? Mm -hmm. Physiological comfort. Right. Right. So for us, that means a, a roof over our head, a clean and comfortable apartment. Mm -hmm. Next on the list, second tier up is safety. Mm -hmm. Right. So an environment where, you know, you feel safe, where there's someone watching over you, where you don't feel that either you can't get out if there's a fire or you need some other kind of, of assistance. Third on the list, social connection. Mm -hmm. So during COVID, we focused on the first two. Mm -hmm. Coming out of COVID, we recognize how important social connection is. And as your friends begin to pass away or move away, mm -hmm. you know, your ability to connect gets harder. And so one of the things that we provide is that connection, that easier connection. What we have to do a better job of is allowing people choice in how they engage with others mm -hmm. and finding different mm -hmm. ways to, to facilitate that engagement. And I think you'll see more of that happening in the future. Interesting. Yeah, not everyone wants to be a social butterfly in the same way, but they still need connection. So it may only be one or two hits. My mother wanted like 10 hits a day. It made a difference for her, like me. And you have to be able to handle that whole continuum. I'm curious about what you said before about finding meaning in one's career. And we were talking about your workers. I want to talk about you and how that worked mm -hmm. for you. And I also want to think about operations versus investment, because they're the two sides of this business that really have to coexist in a big way. And we've talked about it. First thing, as you went into this, both wanting to be an entrepreneur and in a caring profession, talk about that. For me, it boils down to the double bottom line or the <laughs> triple bottom line, doing well by doing good. <laughs> So without going into politics, mm -hmm. for me, leaving the world a better place is very important. And um, my favorite quote is one by Margaret Mead, never doubt that a small group of committed people can change the world. Indeed, it's the only thing that ever has. Mm -hmm. That resonates with me. And so for me, any career choice had to involve something that um, promoted the common good or serve to make life better. And, you know, as I've gotten older, I understand my ability to have a larger impact. I understand that large impact is difficult, but each of us can have an impact on other people's lives and those that we come in contact with. And that in our industry, our industry affords us an ability to do that every single day. <laughs> and so it is a prime industry if you're one who believes that you can, that you have a responsibility to make another life better. So doing well by doing good means mm -hmm. providing a good product that people want, mm -hmm. they're satisfied with, they want to buy more of, so that you can make money. 
<laughs> and I've always believed that to do well, you need to do good. So for me, that's what inspired me into the way I've put together Juniper and how I live my life and how the culture of my company evolves or was formed. Mm -hmm. It's interesting as you talked about the service orientation of your business and these workers who both at the front end when healthy uh, older adults are coming in versus at the end of life when healthy older adults are leaving, the caring that they have is huge. And I was thinking of training and I was thinking of contrasting it with hospitality. And in hospitality, you have all of those service desires and friendliness and training around what makes it really good and special, but you don't have the caring. Well, you don't have the continuity. Mm -hmm. And that's typically what's different. So, you know, when some, the hospitality industry, hotels, most people mm -hmm. don't live in hotels over an extended period of time. Yeah. And the equivalent of hotel frequent flyers you know, the, the folks will know them and understand. And, and I think the hospitality industry has done a great job on data collection, particularly on their most valuable customers mm -hmm. and know and deliver personalized services to those individuals. But still, those individuals are not relying on them day in and day out for all of what makes their life full. So caring is a piece of it. At Juniper, we don't really use the word, re, the word care. Mm -hmm. We think of it as nurturing. Mm -hmm. And nurture is broader mm -hmm. than care. Mm -hmm. And we believe it takes in the whole person. So it's not just your body, yep. but it's also your mind and your spirit. Words matter. And it's also like contrasted then with the apartment business which does have long-term residents, but the residents don't have the level of need, desire that your residents have. Yeah, that's true. With the exception of naturally uh, occurring retirement communities. Yes. Norks. Yes. Norks. Yeah. We think of naturally occurring affordable housing in our business a lot, but I hadn't thought of naturally occurring retirement communities. And I lived in one. We moved into a co-op apartment building on Knob Hill in San Francisco, and everyone yeah. was over 80, essentially. Yeah. A lot of them in New York City. Yeah, of course. Yep. Of course. Yep. So people just age in place, and yeah. it ends up being a place where there are a lot of people with the same needs. Yeah, then you get services in. So talk about the, the balance in your business between being an investor and being an operator and how much you're able to put attention on both of them and how you see yourself that way. It's a difficult question to answer because I will, I can answer for myself how I see it. Mm -hmm. I think our industry has evolved. Mm -hmm over the decades that I've been in it. Mm -hmm. And it is at an interesting point relative to capital. And the dynamic between capital and operations is at a, an interesting point right now. Um, Juniper always looked at, I said before, we purchased undermanaged properties. Mm -hmm. And how you buy and how you finance mm -hmm. is key to the amount of money that you have to not only pay investors, but invest in operations. Mm -hmm. So if you buy at a very high price, at a high, at a low cap rate, at a high price, right. high multiple, and you lever that 70%, even 60%, mm -hmm. depending on interest rates, of course, that's one of the, right. the criteria as well, you know, you have a huge nut. You've got mm -hmm. a huge payment that has to be made every month. And you're typically in our industry can't raise rents to right. cover a, a new capital structure, particularly one where the price of the asset is that high. Mm -hmm. So a couple of things happen. You want to you want to increase prices as far as you can. You want to reduce expenses, but it creates a bit of a dissonance between mm -hmm. what capital needs and what operations needs. Mm -hmm. And that happened. I, I believe we're feeling the pain of that during COVID in our industry. We would feel it anyway, regardless of the cap rates that we were dealing with pre-COVID, but mm -hmm. they tended to be very, very, very low. And when you're talking about that, are you referring more to level of services, assisted living and nursing, not independent? Because that's easier part of those dynamics, maybe. Independent living doesn't have, you know, has a higher margin in general, mm -hmm. but the older people get, if you want to keep your length of stay up mm -hmm. and stop the churn, mm -hmm. 
you know, you provide those services. So there, some of that is inching its way into independent living. But yes, I'm talking primarily of, of assisted living and skilled at this point in time. And so, um, and there's another dynamic that's come into play. So COVID has made it really hard because mm-hmm. we had to spend money on COVID, on PP&E, on testing, which now don't pay for, um, but extra salaries for staff, et cetera, et cetera. Very expensive margins going down, a lot of people having problems. Um, at Juniper, when we start, and going back to the beginning of your question, our goal was to buy well and finance appropriately right? so that we could provide good returns to investors, but also make sure that we did good, that we did the right thing in ops. Right. And so we have not grown like many other companies have grown because we can't access assets that meet our parameters as often as others can. And in your case, those parameters are driven more by the control factor of doing good versus the control factor of, oh, I could buy it, I can make it work, I could squeeze the rents and squeeze the expenses so it will make money. But if you're adding the double bottom line, you're in trouble. No, I would put it differently. I I would say um, balance uh-huh. is what drives us. So think about it another way. Okay. You have, if you're lucky, you have two feet, right? They're firmly planted on the ground. Mm-hmm. If you start hopping around on one, you're not as stable. Mm-hmm. So the best thing you can do is to plant both feet firmly on the ground. That's what we do mm-hmm. when we think of doing well by doing good. Mm-hmm. It's both are necessary for success in our lives. But in terms of the industry today, COVID has really hurt folks. We are desperately... Uh, you know, we paid a huge price mm-hmm. in so many ways, and we remain, we still have capital that we've borrowed or used and have to make a return on that capital as well. So there's a, a great deal of pressure there. And I think that the disconnect between what is realistic in terms of recovery on the operations side and what capital needs, not just demands, but needs, right. is going to be difficult for the next at least 12 to 24 months. So there's a recovery period before it stabilizes back out. It may stabilize back out at a higher cost operating cost structure that you have to build in just assuming this kind of stuff. Possibly. Possibly. I think that the jury's still out on that. I think there will be some some new additional costs. Fair deal. And talk about this business being woman-owned business for you. So I come from a long line of women entrepreneurs, so it, it was not a difficult decision to make. So being a woman in business, you know, it's changed, but not dramatically. Mm-hmm. I would have hoped. I have a son, not a daughter. Um, but had I had a daughter, I would hope that things would be further along than they are now. I think if every corporate board was gender balanced, mm-hmm. businesses would be very different. Mm-hmm. And I know people will disagree with me. Not every woman is going to bring certain things to the table, but I think we bring a a different perspective Mm -hmm. and a different sensibility. And all the research I've read says that's positive Mm -hmm. for the bottom line. In terms of woman-owned businesses, it's not easy. I, you know, if I were to walk into a room with a guy, they're still going to look to the guy mm-hmm. over me. Mm-hmm. I'm on a number of boards. Very few of them are gender balanced. Mm-hmm. Some are, and I really, I sit on the board of a public company, um, Sabra, and the uh, chair of the board and the president has done a marvelous job. The CEO has done a marvelous job bringing in diversity to our board over the last year. And I applaud him for doing that. So I think it's happening, Mm -hmm. but slowly. Is there a couple of words you can use of that different perspective that women might bring? Can you summarize what those points of view might, how they may balance out a board? What's missing otherwise? I think women are really good listeners. Mm Mm-hmm. And I think they have, um, generally, we're extremely adaptable. Mm-hmm. And so I believe coming into a board, we listen, and I think we're solution-oriented. I actually believe it's part of who we are as women. I believe that if you've been lucky enough to have been pregnant as I was, mm-hmm. you realize from the moment you know you're pregnant that you're responsible for another human being. Mm-hmm. It is visceral. 
Mm-hmm. It's just there. And while I think many men share that and can bring that to the table, I think it often comes easier for women to bring that sense of finding solutions that are positive for um, a collaborative, a collective of people, Mm -hmm. um, of listening to understand is something that we tend to do well and we bring to the table. We bring all the other things to the table too. We're equally smart. Yes, we understand technology. We can strategize and we can execute. So, you know, I think it is the balance of um, different strengths that we need in corporations. And frankly, I believe it has to start at the top. I'm I'm wondering how much of it's also, I'm thinking of these words, and I don't know if this is true about gender differences, but I think women may have a longer term view and perspective of the world. You know, I think all people have the capability to lend something to a conversation. I think mm-hmm. all of us are important and all the different perspectives are important. Our backgrounds are important. Where we come from and what we learned and how we learned is all important to things. I think that You know, it's like anyone being in power. Once you have it and you want to surround yourselves with others who look like you and are like you because there's a sense that you need to preserve that. So it's allowing others in and seeing the strengths Mm -hmm. that that brings to the discussion and what that adds to the whole. And Mm -hmm. to me, that's important. And, I, you know, I think all of us can continue to learn in that regard. The Me Too movement, there isn't one woman I know mm-hmm. at the top of a company who hasn't had a Me Too movement. Totally true. We all have stories, and it, mm-hmm. and they aren't pretty. No, no. Two more questions. Talk about the 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 investment profile and future of the seniors' housing, from independent living to nursing care, and the demographics around that. And your prognosis: Does this industry grow, strengthen? Is it too big? Is it overinvested in? Talk about that. Yeah, I don't think it's too big and I don't think it's overinvested in. I think the investment may shift to different parts of the business. I think we're going to see new real estate, new types of real estate models emerging over the next five to 10 years. I don't think that the model for boomers has that we've hit upon it. I'm not sure it will only be one. It may be a group of models, but I don't think we're there yet. So I think we're going to see more of that. And I think that will require more capital to come into the business. I think we're going to see capital flow into different ways, different service delivery platforms, Mm -hmm. whether they be technology-based or people-based or some combination thereof. So I think capital will continue to flow into the business. As for demographics, yes, there's a huge number of those of us who are growing older and who will need some form of service Mm -hmm. to keep us going in the way that we want or need to be kept going. Um, What that looks like is going to evolve. You know, probably for me, the single biggest, I think two things are clear. We need a high tech, high touch model. Mm something that utilizes technology to drive as a foundation mm-hmm. for the work we do for both data and communication. And we need touch. We need real people. And it's balancing those two in the combination that I think will work best for the demographic for us mm-hmm. coming into the future. I think we're going to see a lot of innovation over the next little while. I think this industry is going to have to be serious about innovation in the next five years or someone else will come in and disrupt it, someone you least expect, Mm. or don't end up now. And then innovation comes because a buyer user preference will evolve, and if you guys don't evolve, something will leapfrog. I believe so, yes. I'm also, I just wrote down the word science fiction-y. I'm thinking there's some science fiction-y stuff going on with longevity, with technology that will affect us as we get older, that even further pushes the importance of Well, you know, you hear about robotics, you hear about wearables, all of that. I believe, despite our feelings about privacy, that Mm -hmm. anyone who carries an iPhone or they're similar, we have no privacy. They know everything about us. And as much as I don't like that, I accept it. And so I believe that our, our ability to use data, not just for consumer purposes, but for health and predictive purposes is right. going to increase. And the opportunity for personalized 
care and service will only grow in the future. And I just hope that people believe in Margaret Mead and, uh, you know, that we, we do it right. But I think it will change dramatically. Yeah, I bet. It's funny. Someone knows my heart rate through the day. And they know my heart rate when I'm stressed because I do this app that lets when I ride a bike up a mountain, which I do, right? Someone's watching that. And, and I want them to have that information to know what, you know, the heart rate of a 65-year-old means under stress like that. And if they know that from enough 65-year-olds, then my health care and everyone else is going to improve. That's right. So you know what has to happen now. Every, those data exist. Yeah. They're all over the place. They need to be normalized and pooled and then... Yeah. Fairly worked with. Absolutely. So the last question, always on leading voices, is your advice to a young person entering, I'd say in the real estate business, but entering into the senior housing, senior care business? We are a huge growth opportunity that's open to dynamic change over your professional lifetime. It's a great place to be mm-hmm. if you want to do well by doing good. Mm-hmm. And if you want to be on the forefront of changing lives and making lives better mm-hmm. while still making a good living. You know, there's no doubt that older Americans, you know, we're living longer, we're living better, mm-hmm. and that's going to continue to grow. If you want to be on the edge of something, you want to learn how to innovate, you want to apply that innovation and make some money off of it, great place to be. I think that's wonderful advice. It's interesting when I advise young people, I suggest they go into niches. And I was in your niche for three years, and I jumped out of it when the niche messed up for me. And in some ways, I wish I stuck with it, because any niche, if you dive deep and make and go, go, learn, 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 if you're good enough, great things will happen. And particularly in your niche, which does combine that ability to make a difference and make some money, make a living, and it's great. Yeah. Wow. It's been good to me. Cool. Lynn, thank you very much for being guests on our show. We will keep talking. We will find a way to do this. And I really appreciate your time. And likewise, thank you so much. Take care. Thank you for listening into Leading Voices. And I hope that you enjoyed today's episode. I have a request. If you enjoyed the episode and found it to be valuable, please share it with a friend or two. If they're podcast wary, take their smartphone in your hand and subscribe for them and teach them to listen. You'll change their life. Seriously, thanks for listening and keep in touch. You know you can reach me at matt at terrasearchpartners.com. See you next time.